you're listening to audio from the West End Community Church in McGregor, Manitoba. Well, take your Bibles and go to uh, John chapter 5 this morning. And I anticipated that our service was a little bit full today, so um, I'm going to do my best. Just, just know that I'm trying, even when I fail. So in the uh, previous two Sundays that we spent in John, we, um, we looked at a couple of different conversations that Jesus had with different people. Um, and these two conversations that we had, the one with Nicodemus and the other one with the Samaritan woman by the well, um, these two conversations we know were um, unique to the Gospel of John. They're not found anywhere else in the Bible outside of John's Gospel. This morning, we come to John chapter 5. And John chapter 5, um, in John chapter 5, Jesus has an encounter with a, a paralyzed man, or, or uh, some of your Bibles probably tell or call him an invalid. Um, it's this story in John chapter 5 at the beginning is only found, again, in the Gospel of John. Um, and we mentioned right at the very beginning when we started out in our, in our study of John that John mentions the fewest number of miracles uh, that Jesus performs as compared to the other Gospels. He only does eight. Uh, in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, um, there are more um, John only mentions eight miracles that Jesus does, and of those eight, six of them are unique to John's gospel. This, in John chapter 5, is one of, the, uh, one of those miracles that are unique to the gospel of John. Um, one of the other things that we're going to find when we go through John chapter 5, or maybe you won't find this, but this is what I found, this is actually one of, uh, one of the most difficult chapters to, to kind of just uh, go through or, or maybe just to, to understand exactly what's going on. There are a lot of moving parts in John chapter 5. And um, we really don't have the time to, to dive into all the different aspects of that. Um, so our task here this morning really is what we want to accomplish— I just want to highlight a few things from this story in John chapter 5 and Jesus' encounter with this, uh, this man who, um, who was lame. And, uh, and then after we go through the story, just kind of highlighting a few things, I just want to give you a couple of angles or a couple of different perspectives um, by way of application. There is so much more here in this chapter that, that we really could go through. And... Uh, like I said, we, we just don't really have the time to do that. So in John chapter 5, verse 1, uh, that's where we're going to start. But before we do that, why don't we just take the time to, uh, to ask the Lord's blessing on our time in the Word. Heavenly Father, it is good to be here this morning. And uh, I, thank you for, um, I thank you for these moments that we can have together as a church. We can come to your table and we can celebrate. Um, we can celebrate the sacrifice and 
it seems so silly sometimes that, that that's something that we rejoice about. When we rejoice in, in a tragedy, when we rejoice in, um, in the horrors of death, but Father, we would not be here had it not been for the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. And so we're thankful for that. We're thankful that we can remember the grace and the mercy that was shown by Jesus on the cross. And now, Father, I, I just pray that, um, that your word would speak to us this morning, that what it is you have prepared to share with our hearts, with our minds, that it would touch us deeply, that, um, God, every time we, we read from your word, we want to be changed and I pray that that would be the case again this morning. I'm so thankful for this church. I'm so thankful for these people, Father, for their faithfulness to you, for their encouragement to me. Uh, thank you for the example that they are. And, and Lord, I just pray that you would bless them and teach them this morning through your word. And thank you uh, for using me as a vessel to do just that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 5 and verse 1. John chapter 5 and verse 1. Here's what it says. And uh, we'll just read for a bit and then we'll pause. So after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. <clears throat> And in these lay a multitude of invalids. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while, I am going, and while I am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Let's pause there. So our story here takes place, we know the setting is Jerusalem, right? Uh, it says that Jesus had gone up to Jerusalem, which is kind of weird because he was in the north and... He was going down, but um, it says that he went up to Jerusalem. It doesn't say uh, which Jewish feast that he was going to uh, Jerusalem to celebrate. Uh, we can assume, if we can assume when we're talking about the Bible, we can assume that it's probably one of the three major feasts um, that every Jewish male 21 years, and old, uh, 21 years of age and older was requ required to go to Jerusalem to celebrate um, these feasts. Uh, it was, there was Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles. Those three were the biggies. And they were the ones that, that all the Jewish males were, were required to go down to Jerusalem to celebrate. So Jesus 
is here in Jerusalem, and we find this story takes place somewhere near something called the Sheep Gate. Um, there were different gates. We kind of went through that, uh, if you remember back this far, when we talked about uh, how Nehemiah was rebuilding the wall, and, and uh, we kind of talked about all the different entrances into Jerusalem, um, a bunch of different gates. In the north eastern, maybe it's the northwestern, doesn't matter, it's in the north. Uh, in the northern part of Jerusalem, there was a gate, there was a place where you could enter into Jerusalem, it was called the Sheep Gate. The reason it was called the Sheep Gate was it was because, go figure, this is where you brought in sheep. I mean, very simply, if you had to bring sheep into Jerusalem, if you were going down to the temple to, uh, to sacrifice, um, that's where you brought in the sheep. They didn't obviously want a whole bunch of sheep or a whole bunch of animals going in through the, the main gate, so they asked them to go through the sheep gate. And Jesus, uh, sorry, John also tells us that near the sheep gate, Verse 2, I think, or verse 3, verse 2. There in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which had five roofed colonnades. So, this is interesting to me. Uh, John tells us that there is this pool there that is near the Sheep Gate, and it's the pool of Bethesda. Bethesda, in Hebrew actually means, um, it, it's, a, it's, a trans- it's an English transliteration of, of two Hebrew words, Beth, Bech, uh, and uh, yeah, you got to have the C-H in there, Bech uh, and Hesed, which basically means, this is one translation, there's a few different people who disagree or whatever, but it basically means house of mercy, okay? And so, and I don't think that this is coincidental, Really, what this story is, is a man who needs mercy is going to find mercy from the lamb near the sheep gate in a pool called mercy. Pretty awesome, right? Uh, This is a wonderful picture of the compassion of Jesus Christ. This is a picture of the healing virtue of Jesus. And it is all coming together in this one merciful moment to bring healing to this guy that we don't even know the name of, just this unnamed guy. All we know about him is he is lame. Uh, He's been an invalid. He's paralyzed, whatever. Doesn't have the strength to to move around on his own. And he's been that way for 38 years. I don't know if that's his whole life or, or what, but for 38 years, this is where this guy has been. Now, for the longest time, Bible scholars... Uh, archaeologists, some theologians questioned whether this story actually happened. And the reason why they questioned uh, if this story ever happened was because nobody could find the pool of Bethesda. They didn't know where it was. And so, you know, they're looking around Jerusalem uh, and and there's all sorts of excavations archaeological excavations going on in in Jerusalem all the time. Nobody could find where the pool of Bethesda was. Certainly not near the sheep gate. And so John, this uh, writing this story came into question. And not only this story, but actually the entire gospel of John, people, some people would say um, that 
maybe his entire his entire gospel, his entire writing was called into question because um, because there was no pool of Bethesda. They didn't uh, they didn't know where it was, and they didn't believe that it was actually there. Hadn't been discovered, and so they dismissed the story as made up, and they dismissed John's gospel as being made up. Then, 1956, uh, sorry, not 1956, late 19th century. Um, eight, in 1888, a German archaeologist by the name of Conrad Schick, I'm just giving you some trivia here, discovered the pool of Bethesda, right where it was supposed to be, near the Sheep Gate. Um, and it is wonderful when archaeology and science catch up with the Bible, isn't it? That's, to me, that's great. Um, and so they found that this was the pool, and, uh, and th- then in 1956, which is you know, more than 50 years later, archaeologists continued to dig up, and they unearthed a rectangular pool with a portico on each side and a fifth portico in the middle, dividing these two rectangular pools, and it fits exactly with what John chapter 5, verse 2 says. The pool of Bethesda. I mean, I love it when, when things like that come together. And, and people just don't have faith because they don't see it with their own eyes. They just read it and they, they don't see it, so it's not real until they can see it with themselves. But that's, that's just a great example of how we as believers in Jesus have to have this element of faith in all that we do because there's only so much that we can read. There's only so much that we can see. There's got to be this this faith leap that we all have to take. Being certain of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. We have to have faith, okay? There's my little soapbox for today. Um, I don't know about you, but if you've ever read through John chapter 5 and, uh, you know, you read this story, I don't know what you imagined, but here's what I imagined. I imagined uh, this, this kind of like um, common area, dirt floor, obviously, and maybe some stones on, on the ground or whatever. And then in the middle, there's like this fountain uh, like you'd find in a mall. You know, like this, just this kind of, or, or maybe like a kiddie pool sized kind of, kind of pool. Well, that is not the case. I mean, if you study this, you can actually go into the, go into the uh, computer, Google the pool of Bethesda. You're going to be blown away. This thing was massive. It was estimated to be bigger than an Olympic-sized swimming pool. And on one end of it, get this, 42 feet deep. Unreal. I mean, what would happen if one of the invalids fell into the, into the deep end? That would be terrible, right? Anyway, that was my thought process this week. This was a big pool. The reason why I share that with you is because if you imagine that this pool was tiny, you know, and it says that there were some people that were laying around it, you would kind of maybe imagine there's oh, it's two or three, maybe you know, six, maybe a dozen. Maybe, you know, that's all there would be room for around the pool. Well, that's not the case. Theologians, historians, really believe that 
in that time that Jesus was in Jerusalem, in that era, there probably were hundreds of people that surrounded those pools. Now we'll get into just a, a little bit of why that is in just a little bit. Um, I just want you to get a sense of the enormity of this pool, um, the size of this pool, because it helps us understand the dynamics of this story. In, in particular, take a look at verse 3 again. <coughs> in, these, uh, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Just stop there for a sec. See, that changes the whole dynamic of the story, right? Because if you're thinking that it's just a tiny little fountain, you know, one foot deep, it, it, it kind of changes. But, but there must have been a bunch of different people there. And, you know, in some of your Bibles, it probably says, in verse 3, uh, again, in these lay a multitude. My Bible says a multitude. In your Bibles, maybe it says a great multitude. Um, do you know when Jesus, or you know when the, the gospel writers use the phrase a great multitude? When in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, when they're describing, you know what they're describing? They're describing like when Jesus feeds the 5,000. It says a great multitude. Um, if you're using the same terminology here in John, lying around this Olympic-sized swimming pool, it's possible there were literally hundreds or thousands of people that were trying to mill around this place. I just want you to imagine that. Imagine the crowd. Imagine the desperation of the people that were there. Hang on to that thought, okay? So, um, our time is creeping away. But I want you to notice this. How many people, take a look at your Bibles and take a look, just count the verses with me. You got verse one, you got verse two, you got verse three. My Bible just has verse three and then verse five. How many people have that in your Bibles? Right? Okay, how many people have a verse four? Okay, so I guess we have inferior Bibles. I'm not sure. No, that is not the case. Here's, I, I, let me just really quickly explain why. Okay? So, in, I think, the King James and in the New King James, and maybe there's a couple other versions of the Bible, they will have the verse 4 in there. And I'm not going to take the time to read it for you, but it, it talks about just this idea of uh, an angel coming and, or what people believed around, that were around the pool of Bethesda, that an angel came and kind of stirred up the waters uh, of this underground spring. And when the waters were stirred up, that was the time to jump in the pool because you jumped in the pool and you got healed. Um, I don't know if that's the case or not. Here's why it's not in some of our Bibles. The reason why is because in the most, uh, the, the, man, the manuscripts of the Bible that go the, the furthest back, the, the most ancient uh, manuscripts that have been found of the Bible um, don't have verse 4 in it. Some, do, uh, some of the, the later on um, manuscripts do, but the, the ones that are the furthest back in time found, they don't have that. And so um, the King James put it in there, but some of the more modern translations, like the ESV, I don't think the NIV has it, 
um, some of those didn't put verse 4 in there, and they just kind of omitted it. I'm just going to say this. It really doesn't matter. Okay? N- not, not for our purposes, and, and we don't need to, to, to get all worked up about, you know, if you have verse 4 in there or not, whether it's true or not. That's not what this story is about. It's not about the angel. It's, it's not even about the pool. It's about Jesus and about this guy, right? Okay? So if you want to, I'd say just dig into that yourself, or we can talk about it later, but we just don't have the time. Um, so, but if we look back at the story, among this great multitude that were lying by the pool was this man. We don't know his name. We do know that he suffered from some kind of debilitating condition for 38 years. Whatever it was, it was so debilitating that whenever the waters were stirred up, he couldn't get himself there. He couldn't get himself into the, into the water without help. So imagine the plight of this guy. Imagine that for 38 years you had been struggling with something that probably everybody thought you were being cursed by God because you had this affliction, because that was the mentality of everybody around them. And probably there were a lot of people that didn't even want anything to do with this guy because they didn't want to catch what he had. And they certainly didn't want God to think that he was, they were associating with this guy. So probably, probably this guy led a pretty lonely existence. I mean... Yeah, he was just kind of lying by the pool, right? <clears throat> and if you think the only cure to, is to get in the water and everybody's trampling over you to get into this pool, imagine how discouraged and hopeless this guy must have felt. To be sick like this for 38 years. <clears throat> Everybody elbowing you and trampling you to get into the water. So here he is in this helpless condition, and then verse 6. This is what Jesus says. Ask him, really, on the, on the surface, a, a fairly silly question, right? When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Uh, I like what the, I think the King James says, do you want to be made well? I like that even better. Do you want to be made well? Why even bother asking that? I mean, 38 years. 38 years this guy had been dealing with this. Of course he would want to be healed. Why is Jesus even asking that question? I'll tell you why he's asking that question. And this is a true statement, I believe. There are some people There are some people, friends, some of us maybe, who simply don't want to be made well. Somebody has hurt you. Somebody has wronged you. And you just don't want to be made better. You want to hold on to the grudge. You want to, you want to continue to be bitter. You like the anger. Some of those people, they like holding the grudge. 
They are people who would rather die in their sins. There are people in this world that, that would rather die in their sins than be made well, be, that in order to get, or sorry, that they would rather die in their sins than get right with God. Is it any wonder that Jesus said, do you want to be made well? There are people in this world who do not want to be made well. I mean, they revel, not, not revel, but they, they live in it. They've lived in it for so long that it just becomes the norm. They like being angry. They like being bitter. They like being unforgiving. They like having their fun. They like it even if it is rebelling against God. They like it that way. And they don't want to be made well. And I would say that I hope that that is not any of us. Because there is a great number. There is a great percentage, a high percentage of the world that falls into that category. They do not want to be made well. I... uh, I promise that uh, not every illustration that I use over the next year will be about diabetes, but forgive me, I'm going to, I'm going to do this one more time. Um, I started losing weight and noticing a difference in myself last January. And I started to lose weight, and you, you all started to notice and, and uh, give me sideways looks and... and uh, and then people started to say, hey, you're losing weight. You look great. Thank you. Uh, and I, honestly, I enjoyed that. And uh, there was a, I had, I had good friends, good friends, some of my best friends say to me, you got to go to the doctor. And my wife pleaded with me to go to the doctor. And I didn't go partly because I was afraid of what they would tell me. And partly because I just, I didn't want to be made well. I think that's the same sort of thing that's happening here. And I think that's, that's the reason why there are many, there are many of us that, that just, we want to hold on to stuff. We don't want to get past it. And our lives, sometimes I think, we, our lives can be like an onion. Um, sometimes God just slowly peels back the layers. And I hope that when he peels back the layers in your life, that it exposes, and it exposes different things about your heart that you want God to help you. Instead of just deciding, you know, I'm good. I'm fine this way. Don't enjoy being sick. Do you want to be made well? I hope all of us would say, yeah, Lord, I want to be made well. I want to be healed of this. I want to be helped with that. I want to be forgiven of this. So Jesus asked this guy this question. And it's a question I think that we all need to be asking of ourselves. Do we really want to be made well? And this guy, uh, I mean, I read 
probably 10 different sermons this week, and I listened to a couple more about this, and, and there's lots of disagreement. Some people call this guy lazy and you know making excuses and, and not wanting to be made well and, and all this sort of stuff and reveling in all these sorts of things. I, I don't know what the case was. I, I wasn't in this guy's brain. I, I don't know exactly what his thought process was. But uh, like we just shared, I, I, think there's, I think there's some truth there. But the end result of this story is, verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once this man was healed, and he took up his bed and he walked. So Jesus spoke the words, and, and, and miraculously, this guy, after 38 years, gets up and walks. Our time is, is gone already. And there's actually a lot more to this story uh, that I didn't even read and, and we didn't even have time to get into. Uh, there's much more here, but, but let me just point out a couple things. The first thing that I've already pointed out is that we need to be made well. That's the application here. Do you want to be made well? Do you? Do we want to hold on to the things that, that, are, that are roadblocks between us and God? Or do we want to be made well? And do we want to help make this world well? The other thing that, that I think that I just want to point out really quickly is this human element that, that we can't miss. Because... You know, Jesus is directed by the Father to step over, I mean, let's just say that there were 100 people there. Let's just say that, that maybe there were 500 people there. Whatever. Maybe there were only 10 people there. But the Father directed Jesus to step over 10, 20, 100, 200, to step over all those different people and go to this one guy. To heal that particular guy on that particular day. So my question as I was going through this, and this is, <laughs> this is diving into some deep stuff, but, but here's the question. What about everybody else? Why didn't anyone else get healed that day? Why didn't Jesus just say the words out loud to everybody and so that everybody would have gotten up and everybody would have been healed that day? And those are the kinds of questions I think that we need to wrestle with. And I'm just going to say right up front, I'm not going to answer that question for you because I don't know the answer. But it's the same sort of questions that we ask today. Why didn't my spouse get healed why didn't my child survive? Why didn't, why didn't Lacey survive? Why didn't my marriage get restored? Why didn't my parents stay together? People are asking things like this. <clears throat> I mean, if God can do anything, why doesn't he do something for me? And I'm sure that there were some people by the pool that day Plenty of them that were lying around the pool who saw this guy get his miracle and they were wondering, well, what about my miracle? 
Am I not as important as that guy? Does God only care about one and not the rest of us? And so I guess maybe one of the questions that I want to ask you is, have you ever felt stepped over? Like God did something for someone else, but not for you. And when you look at this story, there were countless people who did not get a miracle that day. Only the one guy did. And you wonder, why, God, why did you step over others and they weren't healed and this one guy was? And I, and I don't think it's a cop-out to say, actually, I, I think it's really important to admit that we don't know. We just don't know. There are some things in life that this, in this side of heaven that, that we will never be able to understand. We will never be able to grasp from our own human capacity to understand the heart and the mind of God while he does something miraculous for one person and not for another. And some of us, in, in a similar way, we wonder why he doesn't seem to be answering our prayers, but he does answer prayers of other people. And there are going to be plenty of things in the course of our lives that don't necessarily make sense this side of heaven. And, and we just can't get our theological clothes twisted in knots by, by trying to come up with an answer for something that there is no answer for. I've heard over the years people, probably well-intentioned people, say things that <laughs> they might have been well-intentioned, but they weren't well thought out. People who think that they have to have an answer for situations that just don't have an answer this side of heaven. At some point, we have to admit that we don't have the magnitude of God's mind to understand his heart in all things. And so, if you want one takeaway from this, uh, from John chapter 5, just from what we've been talking about, I would, say that, I would say it this way. When I don't understand God's ways... I have to cling to God's worth and believe that he is good even when times aren't. Let me just say that again. When I don't understand God's ways, I have to cling to God's worth that he is good even when times aren't. I mean, this is important for every single one of us because if it hasn't happened already, there will likely come a time in our life when, when something happens or something doesn't happen that doesn't make sense to you, and it will be easy for you to get angry with God. It will be easy for you to question God. It will be easy for you to get frustrated. And I would say, if you feel that way, then bring those frustrations and that anger to God because he can handle it. He's God. God understands our human capacity, our, our limitations, and our emotion. He gets us. He created us. So even when I don't understand, I, I, I need to say I can trust him because I know that he's a good God, even when my times aren't good. Verse 
Listen to what David says in Psalm 22, and I'll just close with this. Psalm 22 is what Jesus quoted on the cross. Here's what he said, verse one. (laughs) My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, and I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. What's he doing there? You know what he's saying? He's saying, I don't understand. This doesn't make sense. I don't feel like you're even answering my prayers. But then he says, he makes this pivot. And he says, but I know that you are good. I know that you are holy. I know that you are enthroned on the praises of Israel. And then he goes on and he says, in you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. He says, they trusted and you delivered them. They cried out to you and, you were de- and, and they were delivered. They trusted in you and they were not ashamed. This is, this is where we have to get to. As difficult as, as, as that is to say, and even more difficult as it is to do. This is where we need to get to. Even when we don't understand to say, God, you are good, and I trust you. You know, what, what did Paul say in, in Corinthians, chapter 13, 1 Corinthians 13? For now I know in part, right? For now I know in part. You know what Paul's saying? He's saying we just have a limited understanding and knowledge of what's happening in our world and in our lives. And I know in part, but then he says, but then one day when I am with you, then I will be, then I will know fully even, this is beautiful, even as I am fully known. Until that day, when we don't understand, we cling to God's worth as we press into him and we trust him in Jesus' name. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. And thank you that you are good even when we don't Even when life doesn't make sense to us, even when we don't understand, we know that you are good and you never change. We pray this in Jesus' name.